How many of you are hikers? I know there's a good amount of hikers in this congregation. Probably a good amount of amateur hikers, too. I'm what you might call a pathetic hiker. I enjoy, I enjoy getting to the destination, but boy, it's hard to get there. It's a spectacular thing to be on the top of a mountain or even a hill and to look over the vista once you've gotten there and create an amazing accomplishment. And there's something different hiking there than if you were to just have be dropped off there, you know, by a car or something, right? There's something more satisfying about looking out at the site. While today we're talking about mountaintop experiences, we're talking about mountaintop experiences that are not marked by accomplishment, but rather by God's accomplishment. We're talking about mountaintop experiences of revelation, something given by God, and of the bestowal of a gift. Again, by definition, something given by God. So as we look at the text today, we're going to talk about God revealing himself and bestowing a gift. Now, the mountaintop experiences that we see both in Exodus and in Luke are a lot like memorials. I don't know if you caught it, but I was re-listening to the bishop's sermon last week at the dedication of this parish, and he talked about that day being a memorial. Now, when you hear the word memorial, you always probably think about death, right? That's generally what, what, what my mind goes to, at least. Um, you know, a memorial service or a memorial monument or something like that. But he meant it in a different way. He meant it in the sense of a day of marking, a day of marking, the more literal sense of the word memorial. In the Bible, sometimes it's called an Ebenezer. Have you ever heard that? There's that great hymn, Here I raise my Ebenezer by thy grace to here I... You probably know it, right? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but it's the idea of stacking up rocks at a certain place where the Lord did a great thing so that you might never forget what the Lord has done for you. And it's that idea that's going on here into the text today, that these mountaintops experiences, both for Moses and then for Jesus and the apostles, are Ebenezer's. They're memorials for them to take with them, and they're revealings of God. So let's jump right into the text. Look with me at Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. Exodus, verse 34, chapter, rather, 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So what's going on here? Now those of you that are reading for my Sunday school class in the morning on Exodus or have been going through the daily office readings, this will come up. What's going on here in Exodus 34 
Is this the first time that Moses has ascended the mountain? No. Is this Moses... Um, what's significant, rather, about these particular tablets? Look at verse 34, 1 and 2. You see, a lot of times the lectionary does not do us service by taking these things out of their context. Chapter 34, verses 1 and 2 reads thusly, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. And then jumping down, to, or rather jumping back even further before this chapter, to chapter 32, why is it that Moses is getting a second set of tablets for the Ten Commandments? Well, back in chapter 32, verse 19 and 20, we have the answer. And as soon as he, that is Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it into powder, and scattered it in water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Why are we at verse, uh, chapter 34, rather, with a second set of tablets? Because God's people, who had just been saved, just taken through the Red Sea, have now abandoned their covenant and melted down their gold into a golden calf. Rather than putting their trust in the Lord, as soon as Moses had gone up to speak with the Lord, they had abandoned their God. And Moses is ticked to put it bluntly, and he throws the tablets and breaks them as he comes down. And so that's the context for what's going on in today's Old Testament reading. But, notice, it's God's mercy and grace that continues not because of their obedience, but despite the disobedience of the Hebrew people. God relents and once again gives them the law the Ten Commandments. And to be in God's holiness, Moses has to put a veil over his face because God's holiness is so, so illuminating that it makes his very face glow. God is revealing himself to Moses and that's physically demonstrated in his face glowing as he gives him the divine law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, which we just read today, at the beginning of the service. But the Ten Commandments are more than just a revealing of who God is. They're also a revealing of who we are, aren't they? Notice, what do we say in the Decalogue after each stanza but the last? Can we keep the Ten Commandments? No. Which is why we say, Lord, have mercy upon us. But there's a second half. And incline our hearts to keep this law. Should we still strive to, do, to keep the Ten Commandments? Yes, with the grace of the Lord, 
as Christians who have been saved through Jesus. The Ten Commandments are more than a revealing, aren't they? Think about it. They're also a gift to us. Do you ever wonder what God wants you to do? How God wants you to worship? How God wants you to interact with your fellow human beings? You don't need to guess. He's laid it out right there. Most things can be extrapolated from the Ten Commandments in our behavior towards God and towards one another. The moral law is what the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments are sometimes called. Now, most people don't think of that as a gift. But it's an incredible gift if you pause for a moment and think about it. If you have this God and you don't know how to please him, as the pagan gods had, many gods, and they didn't know how to please, you're constantly running around trying to find out why that famine happened or why that drought happened or why that person died. What god did I not appease, right? Think about the Greek mythology and the mess that that is. Think about the other pagan gods of this land, of that land, rather. Well, this land, too, I suppose you could say. People searching for how to please God, if they care enough to do that, even. And yet, the gift of God is to reveal not only himself and his relationship with us, but also what it is that he's created us to do morally, to be like and to not be like morally. Things that will make us happy in the long run or unhappy in the long run. The gift of God is the law, at least partly so. And Moses' ascent to the mountain is not so much about Moses being a great person. We've already seen that it's not about the people of God, the Hebrews being great people, but it's about God choosing to reveal who he is and to give a bestowal of this gift. Moses' ascent to the mountain is a touch point of revelation and gift. Now, think about the transfiguration. The actual feast of the transfiguration in the church calendar is August 6th. But today, the lectionary has us read Luke's account of the transfiguration. You can look at it with me in your insert or Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Now, about eight days after these things, he, that is Jesus, took with him Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, those of you that have been here at St. Anselm for any amount of time, what's the next thing I'm going to say? What question should you be asking about that first verse? What happened eight days earlier? What did he say, right? That's kind of important. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can see. If you don't have your Bibles, you'll have to take my word for it. Look back at Luke chapter 9. What is Jesus immediately before the transfiguration said? Look at verse 23 particularly. 
Anyone have it? Yes? Shout it out. What's he say? Yes. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Continuing with verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And we'll stop there for the moment. There are going to be some very difficult times ahead for Jesus and for Peter, John, and James. Of Jesus' three here, only John does not literally lose his life for the gospel. The apostle James, the first bishop, bishop of Jerusalem, will be beheaded. The apostle Peter, the first bishop of Rome, will be taken and crucified. John will go through great tribulations, all because they are not ashamed of the faith and have chosen to gain true life at the expense of their life. Of course, our Lord Jesus himself will face the most difficult passion of all, being denied, tried, tortured, mocked, deserted, and crucified. It's in anticipation and preparation for all this that our Lord ascends into the Mount of Transfiguration and is changed. Now look back at today's text. Look at verse 28 this time. And we'll continue reading. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain. And as he was praying... The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We'll stop there for a moment. In verse 28, we read that Jesus is altered, is the English. But in the Greek, the word is altered heteros, meaning to change one's class, to change one's kind. In his own account, Matthew uses a different term. He uses the Greek word metamorpho, metamorpho, from which we get the English word metamorphosis, which which comes to us through language as transfiguration. But this is not just some nice trick that Jesus does, right? He doesn't just change to be shining like the sun for the sake of of appearing to the disciples, at least not just without purpose. But rather, Jesus is transfigured to reveal his true nature. This, friends, too, is a revelation, a revelation of God revealing himself to the apostles but it's also a bestowal, a bestowal, a gift. You see, Jesus is not just the great lawgiver. Jesus is not just the great prophet, but he's more. Yes, with Elijah, the prophet, 
and Moses, the lawgiver, Jesus is transfigured, but he's more radiant in their presence. And they are tangibly seeing how Jesus is superior even to these great men of Judaism. It's a powerful vision given to Peter and James and John. And it probably stuck with them forever. In fact, we know that it stuck with them forever because they talk about it later in their epistles. It's a powerful vision. Look at verse 33. And as the men were parting, Peter said to Jesus, Master... It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. You see, Peter thought that this was the very coming of the kingdom of God, and it's hard to blame him. You see Jesus ascending and being transfigured before Elijah and Moses, and you probably think the end is here. This is it. The kingdom is here now, finally, in its fullness. And Peter wants to stay there. He says, let's build these tents so that we can hang out here in the kingdom of God together. The Bible says, not knowing what he said. But then God continues to wrap them around in a cloud. And as he was saying these things in verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. They were overwhelmed, but then just in case they didn't get the point of this revelation, God tells it to them. Look, this is Jesus, my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. It's a clear revelation of who God is, but it's also something for them to take on the journey with them. This mountaintop experience is not the end of the journey. It's the equipping for the journey. In his second epistle to the church, St. Peter writes this about the transfiguration. This is 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice and came from heaven. It came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Do you see what is Peter doing these many years later? He's reflecting back on this revelation. He's reflecting back on this glory. Having gone through hardship and knowing that hardship and suffering lies ahead, he pushes in to this experience of Jesus that he's had to this experience of the kingdom of God. So, of course, the transfiguration is not the full coming of the kingdom, but it is a taste. Before Jesus was to be glorified came the cross, and he was to be humiliated. Did you catch the reference to the cross in this passage? I believe it's only in Luke's account. What are they talking about, Elijah and Moses, when they meet with Jesus? Look back 
at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke what? Of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure. The departure. His departure from this life before being buried and and then risen again. They're talking about all that Jesus is going to do here. What's God doing? He's preparing the Apostle Peter, James, and John, and perhaps even our Lord Jesus himself, for that journey to the cross. He's also giving the Apostles a mountaintop experience and a glimpse of the fullness of the kingdom of God to hold fast and take with them as they go through their suffering, battling, and enduring. So what's the church calendar doing putting this here? What's it teaching us as Christians, as followers of the way? Well, through St. Luke's account, it's taking us with our Lord and Peter and John and James up to the mountain, not as an accomplishment, but as a revelation and a preparation, as a reminder that the kingdom of God cannot be stopped, but first must come Self-denial, renunciation of this world, renunciation of self, suffering, and death. In our common life as Christians, we are banded together in this time and place. And as historical Christians following the church calendar, we are on the last Sunday of Epiphany, going into the season of Lent. Lent is a somber time to draw closer to God, and to focus particularly on our war against the evil powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll see next week the liturgy changes as we go to the 1928 prayer book. The tenor of the service changes as we go to more somber hymns. Alleluia no longer is said during the season of Lent. We go from a time of celebration and mountaintop, particularly in this parish, having just had the dedication, to a time of reflection and penitence. And so as we go as the church, the greater church that is, into Lent, we're given this experience of the transfiguration, this foretaste of the kingdom of God. For we as a church and we as individuals will be doing battle, just as St. Luke shows us in his gospel, and Jesus tells us we must pick up our cross and follow him, each one of us. We'll be sacrificing, denying ourselves, abstaining from things, fasting, and to some degree, suffering a little bit, as guided by the Holy Spirit, for future glory. This call to lose one's life in order to gain eternal life, is the Christian calling every day. But it's one that we particularly focus on as a church during Lent. But God's not unsympathetic. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read, For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God, our Father, and the Church, our Mother, 
thus gives us this mountaintop experience today with these transfiguration readings to prepare for the journey that we're about to embark upon. Think on the transfiguration and the revelation of Jesus Christ as God, this bestowal of this glimpse of heaven, God's law, that gift, that wonderful gift that shows us who he is and what he desires. And as you go through your own sufferings, whether they are in this season or at some other point in your life, remember this glimpse of heaven given to you and persist in your faith, being assured as Christians by Jesus' very own words from John chapter 16, verse 33. Notice, he says this not conditionally, but absolutely. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And as you're going through that, pray for those who are going through a greater tribulation than yourselves. Pray for the church persecuted, as Ryan Ham shared with us a few weeks ago. Pray for the church in the Ukraine. Pray for all those who are displaced, who are made refugees by the violence and the evils of this world. And bring these things before the God who's revealed himself on the mountain. The disciples, to the Hebrews, and to you and me. Amen.